It's just gone 12 o'clock on this 22nd day of February. A very good afternoon to you and thank you very much for tuning in to MoneyWeb at Midday. My name is Duduze Leramela in for Jeremy Mags this afternoon. MoneyWeb at Midday, your 30-minute information pack on the latest news headlines. Coming up, a group of NGOs is exploring a few options following the publication by the Social Development Department of draft amendments to the COVID-19 350 Rand grant. The sixth administration delivered its last budget speech before the elections in May this year. We look at some of the key outcomes from yesterday's address. The Democratic Alliance is set to appeal a high court ruling dismissing its plea to have the ruling ANC's cater deployment policy declared unconstitutional. And as we enter the third year of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. We review relations in a few moments. And finally, we take a look at changing careers. If coding is your thing, it's in the spotlight today. Do stay tuned as we tell you how to pivot from wherever you are to where you want to be. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. But first, a group of non-governmental organizations are mulling legal action following the announcement by the Social Development Department publishing draft amendments to to regulations governing the 350-rand COVID-19 Social Relief of Distress Grant. The amendments allow the department to cancel applications where beneficiaries fail to update personal and banking details within 90 days of being notified to do so. Neil Coleman is Senior Policy Specialist at the Institute for Economic Justice, one of the organizations looking into this, and he joins us now for more. Neil, thank you so much for availing yourself this afternoon. If you will, um, can we just get immediate reaction, I guess, to the uh, budget speech as we heard it yesterday? 60% of the 3.7 trillion rand budget will be spent on not not just salaries for teachers, doctors and nurses, but also social grants. Um, Good afternoon. Yeah, I think... uh you know we have to we have to look at this in the context of what's been happening in the last couple of years uh firstly uh, social grants have fallen their value has 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 been eroded by uh, high inflation as we know uh in particularly in 2022-23 uh the level of inflation skyrocketed so uh social grants in, in general have been eroded and it's a worry that a number of these grants still um, have not been brought up to the levels that they they should be. But the social relief of distress grant, this, the so-called 350 rand grant, um, in particular, has stayed at the same value, uh, nominal value, since 2020. And actually, you know, after inflation, uh, ha- you know, has been eroded to such an extent that is, it's now about one third of the food poverty line. So the IEJ and other civil society organizations who are part of uh, the Basic Income Coalition have been calling for the improvement uh, in both the level of the grant as well as the coverage because many, many people are being excluded from the grant as a result precisely of the sorts of regulations uh, that, that, that you were talking about. And the president in his State of the Nation address undertook to uh, uh, improve 
the SRD grant going forward and to extend it. And that means two things. One is to increase the value and the other is to uh, make sure that people who are being unfairly excluded currently are included. And the Minister of Finance yesterday did neither of those things. So we see it as reneging on the commitments made by the President in the SONA. Neil, almost half the population of South Africa relies on grants. How sustainable is this? Well, actually, I mean, I was looking at a presentation the other day which was saying that the coverage um, of South Africans by grants uh, is very, very low. Uh, Only 40% of the population being covered when over half the population is living in poverty. So you shouldn't see it in terms of the percentage of the population covered by grants. In social democracies where, um, you know, there's proper coverage um, of of the population in the case of, you know, whatever um, contingencies they face, whether it's in relation to illness or unemployment, uh, you know, in terms of old age, etc., uh, etc., et every citizen is covered. So we shouldn't be talking about, you know, this is excessive because 40% of the, uh, of the population is covered. Everybody should be covered. The question is um, not the percentage of coverage. The question is what is the appropriate system to put in place in a country where the levels of poverty and hunger are so high and the levels of inequality are so high that our our people people are not uh, being uh, the rights which are afforded in the constitution, which is uh, to have social assistance for everybody who's unable to support themselves and their family. That currently is not being honored. And that's one of the issues that we're taking up in the court case that we've brought around the exclusion of millions of people from the social relief of distress grant. Because you remember previously there was no coverage of adults uh, by the social security system. And the COVID grant now is the only grant uh, which covers people who have no form of, um, uh, no means of support. I think that Uh, is, you know... I beg your pardon, Neil. Um, That is the question, right? That what do we do? Because when when we ask the question of whether this is sustainable or not, it's not more so about the money, but about the dignity in which people live, right? So you've got young, able-bodied people where the stats came out this week to show that unemployment numbers have gone up. And it's young people also yeah. who are mostly impacted by this. This, again, in a country where crime levels are so high, how sustainable is this? How far does 350 rand take you? It, it doesn't take you very far at all. You know, as, as we said, the, food, the official food poverty line now is 760 rand a month. You know, and anyone trying to to look after a family to buy basic foodstuffs knows that that 760 can buy the absolute basics. So 350 is 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 nothing. It isn't sustainable to have people uh, desperate and hungry, and we've seen that. And these are choices that society has to make. The idea that resources are not available. Uh, is a very narrow and technocratic response to a a social um, imperative which must be addressed. We saw yesterday that the minister uh, is proposing to release 150 billion rand from this reserve bank Mm. uh, account, which is owed to National Treasury. 150 billion rand, by the way, of of 500 billion. Mm. That has only been done because uh, our institute, the Institute for Economic Justice, pushed that these resources needed to be leveraged. Um, so, So resources are there. We need the political will to look at how these resources can be um, um, uh, directed and, and, and harnessed uh, 
uh, in the most effective way. And our argument okay. is that investment in income for people uh, is not, you know, it's not just consumption spending. It's something which enables people to uh, live a more dignified life, yeah. to engage in economic activity, to look for employment, and and all these different things that studies around the world have shown uh, basic income uh, uh, promotes. And if there's okay. any country that needs that, it's South Africa. Neil, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Neil Coleman is a senior policy specialist at the Institute for Economic Justice. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Let's continue with that theme, right? Because the sixth administration delivered its last budget speech before the elections in May. And in a bid to reduce the 5 trillion rand debt, 150 billion rand will be withdrawn from the country's gold and foreign exchange reserves account over the next three years to settle debt costs. We also heard from the finance minister, Inokotongwana, that there will be no new cash bailouts for underperforming state-owned enterprises, only guarantee facilities to fall back on. Professor Heinrich Bollmann is with the University of Pretoria and he joins us now to take a look at this. Prof, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Perhaps if we start with the introductory remarks of the finance minister yesterday, he said, and I quote, our mission over the past 30 years has been to restore both social and economic justice to our nation and to decisively address the inequality that was the hallmark of systematic discrimination and dispossession. The budgets we have tabled since 1994 have been about securing the goal of growing the economy Economy so that we can do more to address the inequalities and dep- deprivation that still scar our society and undermine the promise of democracy. 30 years on, how would you rate this promise? Oh, good afternoon to everyone. Um, yeah, look, I mean, budgets are often um, beautifully written documents um, mm. that many would argue are, are slightly out of touch with the reality we experience on a day-to-day basis. Mm. And and unfortunately, our budget has been a succession of unfulfilled promises. Um, I do want to make it clear that is not necessarily, or it's very rarely actually a national treasury issue. Right? It, it's um, can only go that far in terms of how the plans it makes in these budgets and the allocations of funds, how that actually turns out for us on the ground. But yeah, unfortunately, as promises that have been made how they have turned out I don't think it's been a, a particularly stellar performance Prof, I'm, I'm going to ask you, please, if you can wiggle around the phone a little bit. We are losing the connection. Um, but if you can hear us, right? So markets welcome yeah. news of Treasury and the Reserve Bank's agreement to realize the 250 billion rand of unrealized profits on gold and foreign exchange reserves over the next three years. What does that mean and how exactly will it work? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we're all kind of asking that question right now. Um, you know, it, it, it is you know, what is often thought of as, as paper money or paper profits that has mm. been um, uh, loosened up, if we can put it like that. I think the IEJ did a good job of, of focusing the attention on this. Um, you know, th- these are, this is a contingency fund that has risen enormously in, in value, mainly because of the depreciation of the RAND. Um, and so I think it, it's, um, you know, given the dire straits we are in fiscally, it was a good idea to try and loosen up uh, those funds. Um, of course, there's a lot of care to be taken in terms of mm-hmm. how much and how much contingency you actually do leave. Because, of course, if if, if, we, if we ultimately achieve what we want to here and have a better macroeconomy and more stability, the rand should appreciate, which would, of course, make those um, reserves dwindle very quickly again. 
but nonetheless, I, I think it, it was good timing to to use those funds. I think if if we look at how the the gross borrowing requirement over the medium term expenditure framework uh, was reduced mainly as a result of that. I think it's good. It, it takes a little bit of pressure off in terms of debt servicing costs going forward, but still those debt servicing costs are massive and yeah. they are still growing. So mm-hmm. it's it's um it's merely a, a small dent that it's been making. Mm. Prof Sam argues that what will also help the RAND appreciate is one having electricity ports that actually <laughs> work, right? A rail network that works. And so what did you 100%. hear when it comes to uh, state-owned entities and turning the tide, if you will? Yeah, look, again, I mean, Treasury can only do so much, and mm. I think w- within their purview, they, they are doing well. They are setting certain conditions. Uh, it's not just blank checks being written anymore that went on for just way too long. I think monitoring and an evaluation is, is sort of coming back after the state capture era, which, which did massive damage in, in some of these key SOEs. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's some optimism, but I, I think most South Africans are, are kind of these days in the boat of let's, let's wait and see, you know, show us some evidence of some of these plans being turned into action in terms of turning these SOEs around. Because, as you said, you know, the reality is it's costing us an enormous amount of, of money and, and in terms of just purely the quality of our lives. Um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, electricity is first and foremost, but we've all seen how it's spilling over into our water infrastructure, um, which is a, a big looming crisis right. uh, from a business point of view. Ports not functioning is costing them billions on yep. top of the electricity issues already. Yeah, Um, absolutely. I mean, you speak of the quality of our lives and, of course, the introduction of NHI, which is said to be imminent, is quite contentious, right? So we didn't hear any major announcement on that. Uh, A careful consideration? Yeah, I think so. Um, You know, pretty much I think Treasury was was more convinced by the argument, uh, even though the state and the ANC seems to want to push forward. You know, if we look at every initial pilot says to independent research, you know, the, the important opinions of people like uh, Prof. van der Jeffe, no one is, is convinced in that regard that, that we are ready to pull the trigger. And I think that's reflected in this Treasury budget is looking over this medium-term expenditure framework of any massive allocation in that regard. So I think we're still very much in a holding pattern regarding the energy. I'm sure it's important in terms of how this can Okay. Prof, unfortunately, we're going to have to uh, wrap it as um, the connection won't allow us to hear you properly. But the bit that we could hear, thank you very much um, for your contribution. Professor Heinrich Bollmann is an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Pretoria. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. The Democratic Alliance is set to appeal a high court ruling dismissing its plea to have the ruling ANC cater deployment policy declared unconstitutional. In his ruling, Gauteng Deputy Judge President Aubrey Pahol Dwaba found the DA's case was built on speculation and conjecture. He said, like any other political party, the African National Congress is entitled to influence government decisions, which includes appointing senior staff to public administration just as long as the bright line between state and party 
party is observed. And that is a direct quote from the judgment. Dr. Leon Shriba is with the DA. He joins us now to expand on a way forward. Thank you very much, Doc, for your time this morning. Maybe let's start with the reaction. You disagree with the courts. Why? Well, the DA is a party that's anchored in the rule of law. So, of course, we respect the ruling and we also respect the court process that enables us to appeal this ruling. We fundamentally disagree with any assertion that the case before the court was built on speculation or conjecture because the minutes from the ANC's Cater Deployment Committee that were considered by the Zondo Commission in its finding that this practice uh, is unconstitutional when it influences appointments, those very same minutes were before the court. And they show very clearly that the Deployment Committee crossed over that so-called bright line of separation between party and state. So it really uh, is not a case or a judgment in our view that holds water. And we will therefore be exercising our rights to appeal this. And ultimately, we believe it is a case that belongs in the constitutional court because there is nothing more fundamental as a constitutional question than this issue of a political party brazenly interfering with appointment processes to subvert essentially these processes to the needs of the party and ensuring that there are loyal cadres employed in those positions rather than uh, skills-based appointments. Doc, what's the long game for the DA more so where this is concerned? You want cadre deployment to be declared unconstitutional. We fundamentally believe that we cannot address and prevent state capture going forward as long as we have cadre deployment because as the Zondo Commission told us, it actually laid the foundation for state capture when you are able to interfere with appointment processes. But secondly, we also believe that cadre deployment lies at the heart of systemic service delivery collapse across the state. When you have a situation of the, the lights don't go on because of power outages, you have taps running dry, you have transnet and railways that no longer work. When you have systemic failure across the state, then there is a systemic cause. And the DA believes that cadre deployment that subverts the appointment process is the systemic cause behind state failure in South Africa. So ultimately, we want to move to a stage where cadre deployment is abolished and we're able to replace it with a new merit-based, fair and transparent appointment process so that we get the best people into civil service positions. Mm. Doc, what do you then say? Because we've heard it also being argued that, um, well, what the ANC is doing with cater deployment is no different to what any other party would do, right? So let's say in the elections this year, the DA, for instance, wins the election and you get into power, there's going to be a change when it comes to the administration, more so even at local government level. We saw that with the city of Johannesburg when under Dr. Palazzo when the DA came in, right? And there was a court case around that. And you then are going to bring in your own people in the event that you win the election and that you win the local government elections as well. Is there something to be said about that argument or not really? No, because it uh, deliberately conflates two separate issues. Because on the one hand, there are political positions in the state. First of all, of course, elected positions where political parties uh, are well within their rights to put forward their candidates. Then there's a second set of political positions that are linked to those politicians. So this will be, for example, in the office of a mayor or the office of a minister, you'll have a chief of staff, you'll have advisors, spokespeople, etc. And all of these are political appointments that are linked to the particular politician. And when that politician is voted out or leaves office, 
then those people go with that person. That's what you're talking about. That's what happened in Johannesburg. That's what happens across the world. That is a standard practice when it comes to political positions. However, the ANC is being very dishonest when they try to conflate this with civil service posts. And this is what our fight against cater okay. deployment is about, is that we need to insulate the civil service. That's your state-owned enterprises, your government departments, and indeed your municipal administrations headed by the municipal manager. Those are supposed to be a permanent employees that are appointed on the basis of their ability to do the job regardless of which party is okay. in power. Right. Now, And that's really the big distinction. Okay, Doc. Just very quickly for us, we are out of time. A few days ago, you received um, the Keda deployment documents from the ANC. How's the perusal? Anything you can share with us? Yeah, it's over 1,300 pages. We've so far discovered that there is a WhatsApp group, an ANC Keda deployment WhatsApp group, that sits and discusses and influences the people who are supposed to deliver services to all South Africans. There's a database with hundreds of names of, of ANC cadres where essentially the party looks for jobs for its own people, looking to find ways to employ them. We have evidence of interference with courts leading up all the way to the constitutional court. So it really is a breathtaking revelation of an organized racketeering syndicate in the state. All on the DA's website. Awesome. Yes. That's where we're going soon. Thank you very much, Dr. Leon Schreber. He is with the Democratic Alliance. All right, it's 21 minutes after 12 o'clock. Let's take a look at this because on the 24th of this month, February, um, we're going to be commemorating Russia invading Ukraine. It happened on the 24th of February 2022 when Russia attacked Ukraine. Two years on, the conflict shows no sign of ending as it enters its third year. We reflect on the events of the past and look at the future with Zvin Kachor, Honorary President of the Ukrainian Association of South Africa. Thank you very much for your time this afternoon. How would you characterize this moment? Um, thanks a lot for having me. I think, first of all, it's not uh, two years, but 10 years of Russian military invasion. In uh, February 2014, Russian military forces has inv- have invaded uh, Crimea. And while Putin initially denied this, already in 2015, he openly um, uh, recognized that uh, on the night of uh, February 20th, um, he made the decision to militarily invade Ukrainian territory. So this is a very uh, dangerous uh, time because uh, we can see that 10 years this military invasion uh, continues and Ukraine is a sovereign state without any uh, contested borders prior to Russian invasion. It's also founding member of uh, United Nations and now Russia is grabbing territory of um, sovereign uh, states and uh, there is no ways how Ukraine can defend itself because Russia is sitting with at the UN Security Council with a veto right and um, even the ruling of ICJ that uh, ordered already two years ago for Russia to withdraw its uh, military forces from territory of Ukraine is not uh, working. You speak of Ukraine defending itself, not just at the United Nations, but on the ground. How was the offensive progressing? I think from the very beginning, um, there were there was some doubt as to whether there's capability on the part of Ukraine. But it would appear that the country has held its own. Yes, um, Ukraine is um, uh, holding, and you are correct, that when Russia started the full-scale invasion, and currently there are more than 400,000 Russian uh, soldiers on the ground on the territory of um, uh, Ukraine, there was little belief that Ukrainians can uh, withstand, but Ukrainians continue to to fight, uh, and I think it also has a global significance, because Ukraine is a country that gave up 
nuclear weapon. Uh, it possessed uh, the world's third largest nuclear arsenal. And uh, it gave up, it gave it up in 1994 to join non-proliferation treaty and uh, uh, Russia, uh, ironically, United States and United Kingdom, France took responsibility to defend Ukrainian uh, territory. And now we can see that Russia with nuclear weapon, uh, the world's second largest army is uh, raging its war against uh, Ukraine. And uh, I think um, uh, we obviously celebrating the resilience of every Ukrainian that continue fighting for their identity and for right to uh, to exist mm. uh, so as of today about 50 percent of those territories that russia occupied in 2022 have been returned and uh, i think it shows that uh, ukraine is capable of um, uh, returning its uh, territory also about 30 percent of uh, russian uh, fleet in the black sea has been uh, destroyed which allowed uh, for Ukraine to re-establish exporting of uh, agricultural uh, products uh, that are also critical for the African continent, uh, despite Russia in uh, July 2023 uh, withdrawing from the grain deal that uh, allowed to export Ukraine unilaterally managed to ensure security uh, by simply destroying Russian fleet. Okay. How are discussions for membership uh, of NATO or to NATO going? I think uh, NATO is in a difficult situation because uh, on one side, uh, United Nations General Assembly uh, with uh, more than uh, two thirds is uh, voting against Russian aggression, uh, 140 countries. Uh, so majority of all continents uh, is telling uh, Russia has no right to invade, invade Ukraine. But Russia has uh, a veto right at the UN Security Council. So uh, there is no actions that can defend uh, Ukraine. And this is a very large scale invasion. Uh, just uh, in last year, uh, there were over 7,500 uh, um, missiles uh, attacks uh, and uh, so all civilians are under con- constant constant bombing Ma'am, thank you so much for your time this afternoon Svinka Kachur, Honorary President of the Ukrainian Association of South Africa You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday So before we go, you've probably heard these words before, JavaScript HTML, CCS Python and no, not the snake, but the jargon, and it's oftentimes relegated to a select few. If you've always wanted to learn about this space, but thought maybe it's not for you because of what you've studied before, worry not. Pivoting to a career in coding is said to be less intimidating than you may think. Mvelo Chlope is CEO of Zio. He joins us now for some tips on how to enter and be sustained by the world of coding. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Mvelo, for your time this afternoon. What is coding? Hi, Dudu. Thank you for having me. Um, so coding generally is the language that we use to speak to computers to program or create an outcome within them. So we use it to um, make applications. We use it to make websites. Um, so we basically speak to the computer to be able to generate those things. Mm-hmm. And you've actually got practical examples of people who have come from quite interesting backgrounds who have made it into the space whereas before it was sort of seen as maybe for the select few i can't talk to computers but um it's actually much more simpler than we thought oh definitely um i think the misconception is that you know you needed to have a certain background um even in school you needed to have studied certain Mm. subjects um you know, we, we get told to make these decisions when we're 15, 16, or even 14 yeah. years old, um, and then they define the rest of our lives. But mm. No, 
you can definitely jump into the world of coding. Um, it's pretty simple as well once you're in it. Um, and really anyone can do it. Okay. Talk us through the ABC steps then if it's that simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there, there are multiple tutorials out there. I think um, what we do specifically at Zaya is, uh, so we have um, free coding um, um, courses that you can firstly take in. Um, to figure out, you know, is coding something that you really want? Is it something that you see yourself doing as a career? And then post that, um, we do have other courses that are more in-depth that you can then take on um, on an advanced basis. Um, here you have access to tutors that can help you through your coding journey. And then once you've gone through um, your coding, you get your certification and your accreditation. Um, and then you, we help you land your first interview um, for your job. Mm. And what if I want to be an entrepreneur in this space? Um, I mean, certainly. I mean, we do get quite a few people that do decide to go the self-employed route as well. Um, so we all understand that most businesses need to be online these days. So if you are an entrepreneur, and even if you run you know, a shop where you're selling goods, you, know, you, you bake goods and you sell goods, you do need some sort of online presence. Mm. So if you want to then have an e-commerce website, coding is definitely for you, where you can learn how to build that website and be able to then sell your goods through your platform or your website that you have built. Okay. Velo, just as we're trying to understand coding, right, then in comes artificial intelligence, AI this, AI that. What do you perceive the introduction of this will do to the space of coding? More than anything, it's going to help developers um, or people that can code um, learn or, or be more efficient in what they do. So AI is not coming in to replace developers. Um, AI is coming in as a tool that developers or people that learn how to code can use to be more effective in the work that they actually do. So it's a companion rather than something that's taking their jobs away or a threat to them. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Mvelo Hlope, CEO of Zayo. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. So before we go, on yesterday's show, we asked you whether job creation as an election tool influences who you vote for. And an overwhelming number of people voted yes. Some 90% of people who took part in our X and LinkedIn poll actually believe that indeed um, jobs being used or job creation being used as an election tool influences who they vote for. And today on the back of our conversation with Mvelo Lope, we're asking you whether young people are being trained for jobs of the future. You can, of course, as always, vote on MoneyWeb's X and LinkedIn pages, and those results will be shared with you on tomorrow's show. Thank you very much for choosing us this afternoon. I'm Tutuzile Ramela. Bahaichu. Bulakio.